The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. Okay, on the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. SHGT is founded by Steve Chen, Asia's number one motivational speaker, generating over $60 million in gross revenues alone yearly. In addition to that, SHGT has a health drink called 888, which by the end of the year is purported to be in 50,000 convenience stores and supermarkets across China. With further interest in filmmaking, advertising, and social media, SHGT is potentially positioning itself to be the number one U.S. publicly traded concern out of Taiwan and China. Oncolytics Biotech trading in the U.S. under the symbol ONCY is doing important research using Reolysin, a proprietary technology, a virus if you will, that attacks cancer cells leaving surrounding cells and tissues intact. We'll hear all about this revolutionary technology and its potential uses, possibly helpful in saving and or prolonging life. David Morgan of The Morgan Report joins me for a conversation about commodities. And longtime friend and speaker Bob Lang shares his thoughts and philosophies regarding personal productivity. When we invest, we typically look for return either in stock price gain or income from dividends. Gain is what we're here for, the root of making life better by doing better. You can take it easy and plop your money in a CD and have little risk and little reward. Or take a flyer on the bleeding edge of technology, where the risk is high and the potential reward is too. Everyone strives to find that balance, that sweet spot. Most of us diversify holdings and get to that sweet spot of personal tolerance for risk and reward, and that's great. How did we get this knowledge? How did it come to us? Someone taught you is my guess, and some of you probably were self-taught. Not to say everyone who teaches has the acumen to pass on the training needed that'll make you successful. I wouldn't ask my ninth grade art teacher to suggest investments or even career moves. That's that's just not their specialty. But then, that's why you're here. To hear about opportunities that fit into your balance. If we designed a great opportunity from scratch, it would have some prime characteristics. A, A checklist of features that make it appealing for further investigation and investment. Or potential investment. Something like... A new huge untapped market, millions of potential customers, or maybe even more. If it was really special, it would be brand new to that huge untapped market as well, or nearly so. So the excitement and the growth has the room to be exponential. It also need to have something that's very hard to pair with huge untapped markets, and that's where the product is unknown, that and being an established and proven business model. For us to have a cool new opportunity, the business should have a history based in success. Well, let's make it a business that has a famous history rooted in not just its own success, but the success of customers over the short term and the long term, even a subscripted customer base, one that's coming back again and again. So let's review our fantasy wish list. Huge untapped market or nearly so. 
New experience for that market. Established model or proven system of operation. A history of success, despite being in this huge, untapped marketplace. And subscripted elements that keep customers coming back again and again. Hmm, can we add some more? I thought I heard someone in the back say cash flow. Okay, it's on the list. Now how about we jack up the wish list one more and ask for no or little debt, if that's not too much to ask for. It should be pretty tough to find a company that can meet those perfect conditions. Would it be even crazier if the untapped market was not just millions of potential customers, but potentially one billion or more? Surely that's too much to ask. What if that new customer experience the untapped market gained was the ability to almost immediately improve many aspects of their own lives in ways they never imagined? Now, for many of you, I'm sure I just tripped on the too good to be true button and it's flashing right now. So let's see if the company we have in mind as an opportunity actually meets this wish list. A huge untapped market in some aspects is China, with billions of people who've had a lifetime of the government controlling every aspect of their lives, with not much hope. Full employment perhaps, but under what conditions? Self-elevation has not been in their model. Not like the USA or the EU. What if your product was hope itself? Man, would that be special. If you have none, or little, or it's wavering, then genuine hope would be very valuable to you. Ask any person with depression. More than that, how about our company has a school, a methodology for turning hope into real-life improvement, a path forward for potentially billions of people who are new to the concept of building wealth or seeing a new and better way of living in the new Chinese economy. I know many of you have figured it out, but for those still curious, we'll start with the history of success and model of operation for our wishlist company. In today's exercise, I'll start with surrogates. I'll pick from the giants of the industry in America. Names like Dale Carnegie, Will Rogers, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dr. Robert Schuller, and Anthony Robbins. They change lives and make money doing it. For some, years after their passing. There are more, but let's take one. Anthony Robbins, American motivational speaker, personal finance instructor, life coach, and self-help author. $30 million in revenue after many years of operating in the capitalist republic of America. He's teaching, life coaching, motivational speaking, spreading optimism, personal development, and self-help. A lot of followers, or subscribers. While many can benefit from Tony's teaching, only a very, very few rise to the level of equal, or perhaps with the opportunity, to surpass Tony's achievements. But it would be rooted in the proven models that people like Tony Robbins have set. Now let's address the last two points on that crazy too-good-to-be-true wish list we created earlier. Subscripted customers and cash flow with little or no debt. I guess we're close enough to the end of this segment to reveal our opportunity in greater detail. One of, if not the most successful of Anthony Robbins' students was Stephen Chen. His company, Success Holdings, OTC symbol SHGT, meets most, if not all, of the items on our incredible wish list. One, they dominate the China market in their industry. Two, they provide the new, fresh experience for thousands of paying customers in attendance, and now online, on TV, and on personal devices. Three, they have an established model or operations based on a history of proven success by other great self-improvement giants. 4. Subscription. SHGT launched a service that will expand its inspirational internet content from its U.S.-based Launch TV subsidiary on its own platform. It features short films and other content with inspirational themes. Initially launched in China, it's going to likely spread throughout Asia and beyond. Now, Steve Chen, the CEO, said he believed this is a highly significant event for SHGT and represented further validation of their formula for generating high-margin revenue through a series of products and or services that are aimed at enriching the lives of the consumer. In addition to being available to viewers by cable TV, affiliates, and 
Launch TV, it's available on iPad, iPhone, Android, Roku, and Smart TV Portal devices worldwide. So there's the subscriptive income in place. So now to complete our wish list of the perfect opportunity. We just need cash flow and little or no debt. In its first nine months of operations as a public company ending March 31, 2015, SHGT had revenues of over $24 million and earnings of $3.7 million. That's just the first nine months. Now, while many will wait and get into the stock when it's trading in years to come, it's the investor with the appreciation for the potential here that will take a position now. The last estimates I've been able to gather are that debt is less than 10% of cash on hand. SHGT on the OTCQB is, in my opinion, Asia's leading provider of self-improvement products and programs. A new area for Chinese citizens to realize. Once they get on that train, it's going to be a long ride. My time is nearly up, but let's add one more thing to that impossible wish list. Wouldn't it be great if the Opportunity Company had a stated goal to buy more companies that aligned with our crazy wish list? Now that would be an opportunity, wouldn't it? And that's not unlike what we have in SHGT, led by China's foremost motivational speaker and marketer, Steve Chen. SHGT has established an umbrella organization for acquiring rapidly growing companies in related areas. So, after going through this list and showing you these points, I hope you realize now is the time to examine how SGT fits into your balanced investment strategy. Seeing how SHGT lines up with this crazy wish list we created, isn't it time to examine how SHGT fits into your balanced investment strategy? Saying you'll do it later is, well, late. Why am I so excited about SHGT? The root of SHGT and the mission of Steve Chen is to help millions of Chinese in business, in their home life, in their spiritual life, and for the others they interact with, make life better by doing better. And if I remember the beginning of our talk, that's what we're here for too. Now back to Ellis. The following segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. as WGPLF and on the TSX as WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest-cost open-pit producers of platinum group metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back, Ellis. Now, last time we spoke, you were about to take a trip to see uh, some machinery that you roll up basically to a mine site without any infrastructure in place and you just have at the tailings. That's a very perhaps unfair summary of what we discussed last time that we spoke, but welcome back from your trip. Why don't you tell us about it if you can? Yeah, I'll give you a few details. One, I learned more. We always do when we go. Really, it doesn't roll itself. It's on a truck. And the unit itself, which I've said on your show and maybe one other, I said it was about the size of a large RV. That's true for that unit. But what I didn't know until I got down there is how much the recycling, purifying of the water system takes. So that's another probably two or three truckloads. So you're probably looking at four trucks, maybe three, four, that kind of thing. But it is mobile. I mean, you know, it's not like you have to build a complete mill, which costs, you know, millions usually. This is something that you can bring on site and set up in a relatively short amount of time and recycle the water. There's very little loss and press on. So we'll be writing the full report up and it will be available the weekend of the 5th, 6th of September. Our reports are due the first Monday of every month. And uh, luckily, I guess you could say the uh, 7th of 
September is the first Monday in September. So that gives us a little bit of extra time. And as usual for our premium members, we took some cameras down there, which as you know from the front page of my website, I filmed one of the principles of this company explaining very briefly sort of from the front end to the back end and what happens in the process. So thanks for asking. Pretty exciting. I don't want to get too hypey, but for a small miner, somebody that really has ore, it is pretty exciting. It's, it's hard not to because the ecological footprint is small and you can make money and not dilute shareholders, which is really, really key always and especially in today's environment when these smaller companies or, or larger ones even, but primarily small ones are almost finding it impossible to find financing. So pretty cool, pretty neat. There are concerns. It's not like absolutely perfect and going to change everything from this day forward, but proof of concept, absolutely convinced. And what remains to be determined in the future, I think, is a matter of just trial and error learning and getting the process to be more and more refined. And we should probably say that you are an investor in that particular company. Thank you for that. Yes, I am. The Yellow Smart Report is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Wellgreen Platinum is a Canadian mining exploration and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM and nickel project toward production. A 2015 economic assessment shows the Wellgreen project located in the Canadian Yukon to be potentially the second largest PGM producer outside Southern Africa and Russia. With average annual production of over 200,000 ounces platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 128 billion pounds of nickel and copper from just 34% of the pit-constrained resource, making it possibly one of the largest in the world. Estimates show that once in production with assets near or at the surface, this low-cost producer may generate cash flow exceeding as much as $330 million per year. Situated along a major highway in a mining-friendly jurisdiction with an active market for PGMs and nickel, and with a strong management team, Wellgreen is certainly to be considered a candidate for your portfolio. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. Now, David, since we spoke last, you and I have both been away and we've returned from our respective points on the planet, but a lot's happened in the market. I think at one point, the Dow was down about 2,000 points. It's recovered quite a bit. And during that time period, I, I was intrigued, but I was never really worried. What were your uh, thoughts and intuitions telling you? Yeah, I was at a seminar in uh, the great uh, Las Vegas Again, I've made a couple trips down there this month, one for a seminar and one for uh, this uh, mobile mill we just discussed. So I didn't have my normal, you know, sit in front of the two computer screens that I do in my normal day. But I was aware of it because of the smartphones, etc. But I didn't have the same type of feeling, I guess, that I had during the 2008 crisis. I felt that it's being called a correction, so I'll use that term, that the correction was long overdue. It was not a surprise at all. I mean, I put out a warning to our members quite some time ago. It wasn't the exact top, but it was much higher than during this drop-off to really lighten up or get out or protect with puts. You know, I said all three, so to beware that there'll probably be some pullback. I thought it'd be September, October. Obviously, started at the end of August, but, you know, I made that call, I don't know, a month or two ahead anyway. So, it's something that I knew would happen by the pattern in the stock market. A lot of people say technical work doesn't work, and let me be the first to state it doesn't work consistently 100% of all the time. But one of the most expensive books I have on technical analysis is by, I think it's Ted Williams, and it talks about the accumulation pattern, the markup, and the distribution pattern, and the markdown. And if you go through the whole book and read it and study it, it actually clarifies a lot of things. So we've been in the distribution pattern for a long time. And Jim Sinclair was recently on the USA Watchdog. You may have watched it. Actually, I watched it twice, one of the very few interviews I've ever watched twice. And he talked about 
I forget his terminology, but mine is interior deterioration, meaning that you have a high price but low volume. That's a very clear signal to anybody that does technical work or even common sense. If something is plentiful and it's selling at, uh, and there's very few buyers, you know the price is going to come down. And that's basically where we're at and been that way for a long time. What happens is the power money or the smart money, whatever you want to call it, buys low and accumulates so they don't move the market up. So they have to chip away and chip away and chip away and chip away. Just buy a little, buy a little, buy a little, buy a little, not disturb the market very much. And then when they're ready, they mark it up. So they start buying bigger blocks for a little while. Remember, these big blocks they're buying are just teeny little percentages of what they've already accumulated during the accumulation phase. So then they start with the market and, oh, the public are lemmings. Oh, look at that. It's moving. And there's a lot of people that are taught to trade on momentum. I'm one. I'm taught on. I'm, I know how to do it. Do I do it often? No, not that often. But anyway, point being that the stock or commodity or whatever it is starts to take off and it kind of feeds on itself. So the public gets in and moves up, 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 up. And then you've got a big position. You got to distribute it. You got to sell it to the unknowing, the unwashed, the uh, the lemmings, whoever. I don't want to be derogatory. I just want to. <laughs> Too late, David. <laughs> I just want to be clear. There's a lot of hype. Stock market only goes up. You can never lose money in stocks. You held stocks for a long, the long term and all this stuff. So they start to distribute. Well, they distribute the same way they accumulate little by little by little by little by little by little until they what? Sold all their stock and not brought the price down because if they sold it all at once, it'd take the market down really quickly. So you have the accumulation, the markup, and the distribution. And then, of course, they go the other way. They short the market, and then they sell their last like a couple big blocks and get that going. And then the public, we'll call them, comes in, oh my goodness, it's a panic. We're going to sell. So having said all that, that's how the markets work. And I think I did a little more in-depth talking about than I have in the past, although I like to talk about how markets move because it's very important for anybody that's in the market to understand fully how a market moves because without that knowledge, then it's hard to make the argument about manipulation or anything. So if you don't understand the fundamentals, then you know it's not very easy to carry on the conversation to any depth. So coming back to the crisis uh, or this, this crash, I'm of the opinion, or well, first of all, it's a fact that the global financial system is more precarious than it was in 2008. That can be proven pretty easily. As far as, you know, when, where is it going to happen? We know why, but when, we really don't know, but there's a lot pointing to, you know, when I said earlier, September, October. So is this the precursor to the crash? Jim Sinclair certainly thinks so. Is it going lower? I think it is. How much lower? I really don't know. I mean, I read like anybody on the internet quite a bit. I mean, there's pundits out there saying you know, 5,000. One I read said 4,500. Others said they'll never get below 6,000. Others say, you know, this is just a brief correction and, you know, it's going to come back and keep going up. So, you know, take your pick. Personally, from a value basis, it's overvalued and it would have to come back substantially lower than it is today to reflect the true state of the economy. So that would be my take on the market. And what will that do? Well, it depends. I mean, it would probably affect almost everybody because even if you're not in the stock market, if the physical economy is deteriorating and the stock market reflects reality, meaning that things aren't as good as we keep hearing on the mainstream media, then you're probably going to see further deterioration in the day-to-day lives of people. But, you know, I want to give a caveat there, Ellis, if I might. Sure. And that is that the lifestyle is so high for Americans in general, even people that are on food stamps or whatever, 
relative to one-third of the world that it's ridiculous. I mean, they're living in absolute luxury on a relative basis. The overall technological boom from like the 19th century onwards, so the last 100 plus years, has been so phenomenal that the average person in North America is living better than any you know 15th or 16th century king ever dreamed of. So it's a matter of perspective in my point of view. I mean, I'm only saying this to get people to think a little bit. So basically, if there were a huge correction crash in the markets and the Dow did go to say 5,000 as an example or as a thought experiment, and economic conditions slowed to pick a number. Let's just say half of what they are now. In that case, certainly there would be a lot of unhappy people. I would be one of them. Certainly there would be lots of depression. I mean, depression is named that for a reason. People generally are depressed or unhappy. They're sad. Their lives have changed in a way that they don't want. And they feel they don't have much control. And there's a lot of connotations around the word depression. And the idea being that even in that case, which I think will happen, by the way, it's not like I think that, you know, we're going to be, the stock market's going to move up and that uh, QE is going to fix things. I am on the other side. I really don't think it's fixed anything. And I think we are in for a big comeuppance. And I think it's going to happen relatively soon. And I also think it's probably going to take place starting sometime this fall. Again, to quote Jim Sinclair, since I watched him twice, you know, he said there would be, I'm going to misquote him, but the idea was that by the end of the year, everybody's going to know this thing is for real, meaning this stock market change. So back on point, I think that even in that case, we can get through it and we're still a lot better off on a relative basis. I mean, does that make you happy or sad? I don't know. It's your perspective. Only you can make that determination, which means some people will be able to see it clearly and look at it as probably something that is an opportunity not just something that is, oh my goodness, look at this, how are we ever going to that? Because if you look at the Great Depression, as bad as it was, and it was, there was a lot of innovation. This type of thing is a motivator for people. And some get motivated and some don't. But it's an opportunity, in my opinion, that's there for, really, it's there for everyone. And it's to reevaluate to reevaluate your lifestyle, maybe reevaluate some of your lifestyle habits, maybe reevaluate what you need versus what you want, and on down the line. We could go on and on, Ellis. I get a lot of stuff that I read, look at, etc., in different forms, audio, video, printed word, and of course the internet. And one of them I gets an audio summary every month, and they did an outlook, and this is a pretty mainstream type publication. You know, it wouldn't be considered alternative media, although it's a subscription service and it's not really well known. And they looked at all these disaster scenarios and they had it analyzed by a statistician about, you know, what was the likely outcome of each. And I don't have it in front of me. I wish I did because I didn't plan on saying this. But all the things from meteor hitting the earth to a coronal mass ejection to viral breakout to, I mean, on and on. And they had like 10 of them. And they went through every one of them, very factually oriented. And so what were the probabilities of each of these things? And what was interesting was that uh, some of them that I thought were just way out there percentage-wise were actually higher than some of the ones I thought were more likely. So maybe I can dig that out. We could do it again on the show. But the idea being that we, and I'll include myself in this, seem to be oriented more on the problem than the solution. You know, there's this, then there's that, and there's others. And there are big problems. I mean, if you look at something that's very seldom talked about, is Fukushima. I mean, is the Pacific dying off? 
you've got these weather patterns that are basically destroying California, and that's the breadbasket of the nation. I mean, California by itself at one time was like one-sixth of the global economy. I think now it's one-eighth, but that's a big hit. You've got you know zero interest rate policy that really isn't working. So we are facing some real major challenges, but I want to call them challenges. I don't want to say that it's the end or that things are going to stop or anything along those lines. It's going to be a shift. It's going to be a word that's overused, reset. And when the reset happens, again, I urge everyone that listens to think about their own personal you. What do you value the most? What is needed most by you? And, you know, I don't get on this topic too often, Ellis, but I'll put my neck out there because certainly I'm used to doing it. And from my perspective, you know, you don't have to agree or disagree, but we still have free speech, believe it or not. And from a spiritual perspective, it may be valuable to some of us because again it goes back to where have I been living my life where have I been putting my attention and where's my energy been flowing geez I've been my attention's been to get up the corporate ladder and work for this company and you know in my heart of hearts I really don't like bringing the next fill in the blank to the public or my fellow people at large because I don't really believe in what they build or what they make or what they process or the food they grow or whatever it is and that's going to be in some cases, in some cases it isn't. What I'm trying to state, and I'll try to be succinct, is because it's a very good time to be self-reflective and contemplative and really think through what it is that you really want to be living your life for. Very few people even have time for that. They get in the rat race or they get on the hamster wheel and they start spinning and they spin, 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 and then they get off on the weekend and they you know, watch TV or do a sport or whatever go grocery shop and do their laundry and get back on a hamster wheel and that's their whole lives and that's not in my view that's a, a life that really we weren't created for I think we were created to blossom and be our best and to thrive and all these things so I've been philosophical today I probably droned on too much probably I'm going to get a lot of negative thumbs down on this idea but what I want to be clear on I'm going to summarize is yes I think the bigger event than 2008 is ahead of us I do think that the human instinct and survival instinct and the ingenuity and spirituality of most people I think is very strong and I think we can get through it not to excuse that there won't be pockets of very extreme behavior because I think there will be but I do think when the dust settles that the reset will be more community oriented I think the uh, top down centralized power will deteriorate that'll be more community and I know that's maybe a stretch now because everyone looks at big brother as being all knowing and all powerful and certainly they give that impression listening to everything we do and watching everything we do and tracking everything we buy and all of that stuff but believe it or not it's very difficult to pick a top and usually when things look the strongest is when they actually are the weakest just like in the stock market you know unless you knew that the deterioration was happening because of low volume it's the same thing at the uh, federal government level or the nation state level across the board not just in the US or Canada but we're talking throughout not only the Anglo-American empire, but all empires out there. And so I am looking for a big reset in many different ways. So I probably droned on a little too long, Ellis, but that's my look at it. You asked, so you got an answer. So we're not just talking about a market correction. We are talking about a fundamental lifestyle correction, potentially here in the United States and around the world. Absolutely. 
which will cause us to be very introspective and to really evaluate who we are. And we might as well get started with that before that potential eventuality and let's say clean house and decide what's important to us and live life for what we enjoy. And then perhaps the income and the money that we've been worrying about will just follow suit. At the end of the day, though, we're probably all going to have shelter and food, right? <laughs> I think so. I mean, it doesn't hurt to put some food away. I want to be consistent here because it's a zero-lose bet. I mean, if you have extra food, the worst thing is you have to eat it. So I'm not against doing that. I do think, again, that the collective would be very dispersed, but uh, communities will develop and people know how to survive. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the past on a case-by-case basis, if you go to Argentina or Cuba, you get a pretty good outline of when things collapse, quote-unquote collapse. I mean, did everyone die? No. No. They made huge adjustments. They got along. They grew food. They went, They had these little farmer's markets or bazaars or flea markets, whatever you want to call them. People bartered. They survived. And in some cases, Cuba actually was eating better than they had before because all this food being grown by everybody was organic and everybody was out there, you know, being a farmer. It's laughable, but no, it was kind of cool in my opinion. So now people are not going to just give up. They're not going to just say, oh my goodness, my stock portfolio is worth half of what it was two months ago and life's over. They're going to say, you know, some may say that, but the vast majority will say, I'd be extremely unhappy, but you know, what do I do now? Or what do I do next? Or or what's the solution to this problem? And I think a lot of people will just have to ask the question of how do I get by on less? How do I get by on less money? How do I get by on less food? How do I get by on less fill in the blank? And when there's some scarcity, it's appreciated more. I and mean, we are in not only the information age, we're in the information overload age. And we're in the reign of plenty. It's, that's a name of a book by a Frenchman I haven't finished. It's a very difficult read, at least for me. But the reign of plenty is now. You know, and again, it's hard to pick a top. It's like, God, if I go to the grocery store and there's 45 different kinds of pickles I could buy, we're in the reign of plenty. It's like, this is never going to stop. It's always going to be like this. There are always going to be 27 different types of breads and 45 different kinds of pickles and 27 kinds of ketchup. You know what? That's the top, not the bottom. And I'm calling the top. Is it today? No. Is it next week? Mm, no. But I'd say within the next two to three years, yeah. Yeah, you're going to go back in, I'd say, four years from now. At least treat this as a metaphor, if not an actual reality. That you'll go in, the store will be there, but there's not 15 brands of ketchup. There's maybe two. And that's kind of like when I was a kid. When I was a 10-year-old, you went in the store, there was like Del Monte or Hunt's Pickles. You had sweet pickles, dill pickles, and you had two brands to choose from. And the shelf space was, you know, a foot wide, maybe. So I'm just trying to give an analogy here or a metaphor for what we're talking about. And the way I see it, is it going to be the way that uh, David Morgan sees it? No. No, it won't. It'll be different. It'll be different. You could dream up any scenario that I give, Jim Sinclair gives, Greg Hunter gives, any of these guys, any of these gals. Catherine Austin Fitz, a very brilliant woman, very, very smart. I really admire her and what she says, what she stands for, and her being solution-oriented. But even as good as she is, and her scenario, it's probably going to come out different than any of us. But I think the flavor of it, or the general outline of it, I think it could take that to heart, because I think most of us agree things are going to get different. There is going to be a change. It is going to demand for people to basically reevaluate significantly their lives and what they're going to do about them going forward. You mentioned being a 10-year-old, and I can reflect 
back to that when we had a lot less choices. And didn't we feel like at the time that those were the good old days? Wasn't life good? And you know, should we be saying now these are the good old days? <laughs> well, you know, in a way, I mean, it depends on the individual. So, you know, I kind of liked it. So if there's only a choice of dill pickles or sweet, I want dill pickles on my sandwich. And I put it, you know, I wasn't shopping at 10 years of age, but I was with my mom when she was. But, you know, you went through the aisle pretty quick. I mean, really, now I get in there and I'm like, gosh, do I want the ruffle cut onion-based pickle with a twist of lime or do I want the, you know, I was like, what? I mean, it just gets to be almost absurd at some point with so many choices. But I mean, like the bread aisle, I mean, whatever. The further point is sometimes simple means elegant. You can do something very simply. That's elegant. Elegance is a nice word and I like it. I think we've gone too far. The pendulum has gone too far. We've overconsumed. We've underappreciated and we have become not introspective enough to evaluate what we really want in our heart of hearts or what's the most meaningful for our lives. So I say those three things are going to be very much in the fore, not in the background in the coming months and years ahead. So too much saturated fat, ladies and gentlemen, too much. David, tell us about the Morgan Report. Okay. Uh, I think the best thing for anyone that just wants to get on the email list is just go to the front website, themorganreport.com. Scroll down. If you scroll down to the bottom, it's not a very long page. You have a little box. You put in your first name and your email, and you get on an email list. So any interview I do like this, we take a question of the week from the readers. And you get a lot of free information. So what happens during the week and summarize it and all that's for free and then we have a youtube channel silver guru we have a twitter feed at silver guru 22 and then we have uh, of course the paid service which goes in from the basic service to the premium service to the mastermind service the basic service is once a month newsletter with updates no extra charge on the updates and then the premium service is the basic service plus we do videos of like our mining excursions and also on the markets. I just did one last night. In fact, I answered. Our premium service is allowed to email me directly with a question. And sometimes the questions are so good, I just get out the video and answer the question for everybody that's on the premium service because it carries over. In fact, it was just asked, what if 2008 happens again? What do you think? Blah, 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 blah. And so I went through that a little more succinctly than I did just now. And then the mastermind is for a high level investor that really has a lot in the natural resource market the economy at large, but primarily in the resource market and or gold and silver. Those people are people that really want to stay tuned in. And at that level, you get pretty close to me and what I'm doing and what I'm thinking about, et cetera, along with a special program once a month that's geared to pretty much what the mastermind people dictate. Well, David, another great conversation. Thank you so much. I always enjoy when we talk about the human spirit and the American heart and how to really proceed forth in uncertain times. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. The preceding segment is sponsored by Wellgreen Platinum. Trading in the U.S. is WGPLF, and on the TSX is WG. Located in the Yukon Territory, Canada, the Wellgreen Project has the potential to become one of the world's largest and lowest-cost open-pit producers of platinum group metal. Metals and nickel. Find them on the web at wellgreenplatinum.com. Hey, Ellis Martin Report vis a vis Ellis Martin and his doppelganger EBDB Doobie make no claims of authenticity regarding any statements made by guests of this particular program. People say what they say, you know.
ABDBDB and LS Martin are paid to purvey these tasty rose petaled outlooks that you're hearing now. Potentials and possibilities, maybes and such and so forth. As always, invest at your own risk. I'm out. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson. President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated. Trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human rheovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a summary on Oncolytics Biotech. Oncolytics Biotech is a company focused solely on treatment of cancers. And the technology that we're using is to use a live agent, in this case, a virus that is naturally oncolytic, which all it means is it will infect as a virus, will infect cells that are tumors and, and are cancer-bearing and kill them, and also causes a secondary immune response. And so what you've got is an agent that actually will address potentially you know, cancers in people. That program has been going on for a while now. We've treated over 1,100 patients in various clinical studies with 13 different cancers. We're actually moving into the very you know, last stages of clinical development right now in a number of indications. It's a very exciting technology. It's certainly very timely. We have colleague companies that are moving along with different viruses and looking at different cancers at the same time as us. And as a group, I think it's one of those technologies that people are going to look back in five or 10 years and go, wow, there's a number of different cancers being treated with these viruses. And so it's something certainly to look forward to. You just announced your financial results and operational highlights for the quarter ending March 31st, 2015. Let's review those financials because they're particularly interesting to shareholders and potential shareholders. Well, of course, financial resources are the lifeblood of any biotechnology company. I mean, the vast majority of the industry runs off its cash reserves as it's going towards product approvals. We came out of 2014 with just a little over a year of cash on hand. And after our first quarter was over in 2015, we have a little over two years of cash in hand and having funded the quarter as well. And we've done that through a couple of different financial instruments. But it's just very important to maintain that cash financing horizon uh, out that period of time. And we're very satisfied with that result. Now, down the road, of course, investors want to know what the revenue stream is going to look like. How are you addressing those questions? In oncology, anyway, one typically looks at each cancer separately and generates a potential cash flow stream from a potential market penetration and market size. And so, for example, if you were looking at pancreatic cancer, there's about 40,000 new cases a year in the United States. 35 or 36,000 of those cases will die within a year of diagnosis. So when one's looking at, for example, a assessing the pancreatic cancer market for our potential product. One looks at the genetic basis for the patients that could be potentially treated. So you're looking around two thirds of that 40,000. You do a realistic assessment of what kind of market penetration you would get, say 10 or 20%. And you come up with a number that's probably around eight or 10,000 patients a year could be treated with real license times a typical $100,000 for a treatment course of, for these new age biologics. And that gives you a, you know, a marketing number that people can back out on a time discounted basis. And you repeat as necessary. If your agent like ours is active apparently in more than one cancer, then you just stack that up. And that's how 
liability analysts build up the financing models for those sorts of things. The absolute key number for people is when that first marketing approval comes. That marks the transition from a cash burning entity like we are now and like everybody pretty much is to a profitable entity. That's a significant milestone and we will be letting people know and letting our investors know what our registration pathway is and what that timeline is in the very near future. Oh, fantastic. So we can look forward to updates as they're happening, correct? Absolutely. Probably the most important piece of information that we get asked by our shareholders is what is the timeline to finish and what is the path to the finish? So we've been spending a great deal of time with regulators, both here in North America and over in Europe, with key opinion leaders, clinicians, investors coming up with a registration plan. And that's probably the most eagerly anticipated piece of information about Oncolytics that I could say. So there are several revenue streams that we can look forward to potentially. Absolutely. This agent is real license, the one we're under development, appears to be active against a percentage of all cancers that have solid tumor cancer. And it's a pretty consistent percentage, sort of 60, 65%. You can demonstrate some kind of activity, either tumor regression or lifespan extension. It appears as if Reolysin is active against around two-thirds of any solid tumor cancer. So in any population with solid tumors, say prostate or breast or colorectal or lung, to some degree. Each one of those actually represents a separate marketing opportunity and a separate patient population for us to treat. You were quoted in the recent news release saying, in the first quarter, we obtained orphan drug designation from the U.S. FDA and the EMA in Europe for a number of different indications, which will support future developments of realicin. Now, before the interview, you were telling me about gastric cancer and how this is specifically appropriate for that particular type of cancer. Would you elaborate on that, please? Well, some cancers are fairly uncommon, if you want to think of it that way. So cancers like fallopian tube cancer, it's very rare, it's, you know, less than 10,000 patients a year every year in the United States. Gastric cancers are fairly fairly rare. In large number sense, things like pancreatic cancer is fairly rare, but they are all life-threatening diseases. And so the orphan drug program at the FDA and the orphan program, which is similar but not the same in Europe at the EMA, provide a structure that allows companies to spend the development dollars and the time and energy required to develop products for these rarish diseases, and in our case, rarish cancers. We have embarked upon a program to take a look at the cancers that we think are most likely reasonably treatable with real license that are also rare. And as a result of that, we filed a number of orphan drug applications, both in Europe and in the United States. So we got pancreatic cancer, orphan drug designation in the United States, and in Europe, we got ovarian cancer and its associated cancers, fallopian tube and primary peritoneal in the United States and in Europe. And separately in the United States, we filed for pediatric glioblastoma or gliomas, which is, you know, children with glioblastoma. And the FDA was kind enough to widen that out to all glioblastomas for us. Gastric cancer is a very interesting cancer. And it's one of those cancers that goes from being very treatable, sort of like melanoma. If you get melanoma early, it's very treatable to very untreatable, i.e. it's a very serious disease very quickly, almost within days or weeks. And so if you catch it early, you can treat it. And if you catch it late, it is life-threatening. So we've had a particular interest in this. We've had a number of patients in not specific gastric cancer studies, but gastric cancer patients in general studies that have all responded well to real license therapy. And so we thought we'd take the opportunity to draw a circle around it and place some emphasis on it and allow us to actually get in to treat this fairly rare cancer that has very serious consequences. Now, you're not a Johnny-come-lately CEO at all. Let's review your background as well as your passion for cancer treatment and a business model that makes sense for the company and your shareholders. Those two things are important, linked together. 
absolutely. My education is, I'm a microbiologist. I have my PhDs in microbiology and immunology. And I was happily working along on in an infectious disease company I founded and had been doing that for five or six years. And I had some personal experiences with cancer. I had cancer and uh, my mom and my favorite uncle both died of cancer all within a very short period of time. And this very interesting technology walked through the door from the University of Calgary here in Calgary. Iris, so was my background in infectious disease microbiology and treated cancer. So we formed a company around that technology and got working on that. So I've been a public company CEO since 1994, both in NASDAQ and TSX companies in the previous company and then in Oncolytics, which makes me fairly long in the tooth in Canada for this business. But this is possibly the most exciting area to be in at this time I, I can think of in biotechnology. We've got a technology that's actually showing, I think, a great deal of promise. And at the same time, we're seeing all these developments in oncology that mesh in very well with what we do, but are just moving the treatment of cancer ahead. Like it's a once in a generation leap forward in the treatment of cancer. And there's two specific elements for that. One is diagnosis. We're actually getting much, much better at being able to tell people the genetic basis of their cancers, which products should work because we know the genetics before they're even treated and diagnosing patients earlier and earlier and earlier. And at the same time, all these developments in harnessing the, the human being's own immune system in helping treat cancer. Those two things together have just completely changed the landscape of cancer therapy. So it's the best place to be in oncology at this time. And for us, having a technology that fits in with all that perfectly, it's the best place for us to be as a company. It's a lot of fun right now, and it's very exciting. And I think we're on the verge as an industry and as a company of helping out a lot of people with cancer. Speaking of which, we're getting a lot of positive response since you began with us on the program. And I'm sure there are many in our audience that either are afflicted with cancer, they have friends or relatives that are afflicted as well, and they're thinking, how can I get involved? How can I become involved in a clinical trial? I'm sure you feel these types of calls on a regular basis. We actually get quite a few calls asking about the technology and depending on where they're calling from, in this case talking about the United States, one can access already existing clinical trials just by going to clinicaltrials.gov and looking into real lysin or real virus and you'll actually come up with a list of clinical studies and different indications. For example, we're about to start enrolling in a pediatric glioma study, so children's brain cancer study. Once that's up on clinicaltrials.gov, people can actually have the contact details, talk to the investigator at the site where it's been treating patients and actually see if they can get themselves, their friends, their families enrolled. And that's just one example. If there isn't a clinical study, a much lower possibility is to get a special access type of a process going. But that is a very rare occurrence for us in the United States. We do a lot more of that in Canada. The system is just different, just an easier process to go through to get patients treated outside of clinical programs. But both avenues are available in the United States. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Look forward to having a chat with you soon. Great. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. Let's see. I shaved, I showered, but I forgot to... Oh, okay. Want more dribble? Find it at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. As a guy who used to walk into a brokerage firm in a perfectly manicured suit, swing by the coffee, pick one up, sit down at my desk and start dialing for dollars... 
Over time, I began to notice that there were two types of people working in that office on the phones, some that were killing time and some that were making a killing. And it all came down to productivity. What do you do with the time you're allotted? You walk in, grab your coffee, hit the phones, or take care of your business, you're going to be moving forward. If you're just there killing time till lunch, well, you should find something else to do with your career. Productivity measures can come at you like well, an old-fashioned family recipe, or a bolt of lightning from the blue, or a religious epiphany. However it comes to you, you've only got so many hours in a day, so many days in a week, so many months in a year, and so many years in a life. Maybe one of the best ways to get a grip on your crazy, out-of-control life is to stop. Just stop. Give yourself 15 minutes a day and start bringing to bear what your ideal productive day would look like. Mine seems to be based around three S's all the time. You've heard them before. The first thing you do in the morning is you shit, shower, and shave. For me, the next thing is email, and that's going to get saved for later, shit canned, or stored. Okay, I promise that's the end of the beeps. As you move through the day, opportunities are coming at you left and right. Some are maintenance operations, some are progressive and moving forward, and some are dealing with tragedies of the past. So you're going to do one of three things. You're going to stand, you're going to sag, or you're going to sizzle. I recommend the latter. Sincerely, if you look at the number of hours you have in a day and how you can approach them best, where to put your exercise, where to put your email so that you can maximize your day, you're going to find yourself moving your life forward. I mean, there's a lot to do in a day and it starts the night before. Build a routine of having everything set to go in the morning so you could fly out of the house as if it were on fire and not miss a beat. Not forget a paper, not forget your keys, not forget your glasses. They're in the same place, same time, every day. A lot of you already do this, but some, <laughs> not so much. Bounce out of bed and hit your first three S's, and then reach out to shake hands with the rest of the world. In the Franklin Covey system, take your tasks and break them into A's and B's and C's. I never get C's. <laughs> They're all A's and B's. There's always a fire going somewhere. As you get into the swing of the day, you need to have certain things built into your routine to help you through the stressful periods and help you deal with the barrage of insane things that happen. Whether it's a prayer, a walk around the block is usually the best. Give yourself enough time between taskings so that you can take care of your own stress levels and your ability to deal with the next thing coming. I'm a fan of the magazine Fast Company, and every year they seem to do an issue about the most productive people. And these people have incredible schedules, starting at 6 in the morning and sometimes going around the clock till 2 in the morning. Others have a 7 or 8 o'clock start and a 6 to 7 quit time. Different people have different ways of getting to their productive routine. But the thing they seem to have in common is they understand what needs to be done. They go after doing it, and they use their tools to help them cope, whether it's assistance or an app on their phone or walk around the block. Now note, I said a tool, not a crutch. Some people have used drugs, alcohol, sex, any number of things to quote-unquote help them through their day, which are, they're actually taking away from their productivity. Find something that's non-destructive, positive for you, and build it into your routine so that you can cope with the meteorites that come flying at you all day long. Another critical tool to add to your bag in becoming productive it's, is, is to say no. I can't. No. Learn to say no. And you can say it in a nice way. Your project sounds extremely interesting. However, right now, I don't have the resource of time to devote to it. No. 
<laughs> After a while, saying no gets a little easier. Just say it nicely with kindness and compassion because you'll be surprised how productive you can be when you approach the rest of the world with kindness, compassion, and an interest in their success. Your success follows right along with it, many times. But you always want to be kind because com- kindness and compassion are a really great way to become productive. You get more people to help you. Time management is the most critical part of being productive. Now we're coming to the end of the day and you've got to handle the things that just must be dealt with today. You're going to give some support to the things that are going to carry over to tomorrow. And then give a soothing hand to the things that didn't quite work out for the day. And settle the items that should have completed today that you're not going to mess with ever again. Now it's time to get out the door. Time to transition from work to real life. The first is slow down. You're approaching your real life. Next is socialize. Call your family. Call your friends. Let them know you survived. And the last thing in the day is sleep. Make sure you get a good night's sleep, because tomorrow you're going to go be productive again. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Bob Lamb. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. This week, I'd like to speak with you about investing and market trends. Lately, we've seen some dramatic moves in the Dow and the NASDAQ, the markets, if you will. Many say that these are moves related to a stock implosion in China, and that China is dominating, if not leading, the world financial markets. I imagine that if the market needed a reason to correct it, now has one. This happens every few years in one form or another, right? The last time we had a so-called market correction, it was related to a real estate bubble mortgage collapse, and in fact it turned into a recession, immediately, one that we've struggled to get out of, perhaps not fully out, perhaps completely removed from, depending on individual perspectives. At this time, what are the main questions? Is the stock market overinflated? Has it been for a few years now? Was it due for a correction? Yes. Is China the driving factor? Yes, but it's the excuse, just like Greece or the euro is an excuse for gold to rise into prominence almost 10 years ago. And then that song and dance got to be a worn-out recording that no longer had any juice after QE3 ended. Who cares? Somebody does. Perhaps it's you. You've made solid investments over the past few years in hopes of building your diversified portfolio. And you've achieved a modicum of success in that regard. You'd prefer it if that portfolio was not at risk. Perhaps you are undergoing measures to protect your assets. You might be selling portions of your stocks and converting to cash? Are you converting to gold? Are you sitting on the fence awaiting your next move? Are you doing nothing? That may not be such a bad thing. The real estate market has already collapsed and reconfigured with property values across the country in many desirable areas incrementally increasing. You're not going to rush off and sell your house, are you? Real estate remains a good investment, as it did after the market crash in 2008 and 9. Are you going to put your money into bonds? Probably not at this time. Are you going to take advantage of this bit of market correction and look for buying opportunities that may not exist again for another 7 or 8 years? Yes, I think that could be a good call. These are questions, and there are some answers, but mystery remains. There is no predicting the future. All you can do is prepare for it. Is it time to stock up on bottled water and canned goods? Well, I'm not fostering panic, I hope, but it's never a bad idea to store either. Look at potential investments without emotion. 
Keep some cash around. Again, an essential. And be nice to your boss. I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.